Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 17. And before I turn to my uh, excellent guests this week, it's going to be a jam-packed episode, but I want to do my usual pitch for Counterpunch and for independent media. Um, this is a difficult time that we're living through, I think. I mean, if you follow uh, the news and, and major media, I mean, all of the hoopla, all of the nonsense around the presidential elections here in the United States... All of the disinformation, the misinformation about what's happening in the Middle East, the complete blackout on issues in Africa, in the Caribbean, and, and many parts of the world, the uh, the various proxy wars, all of these things, all of it is misrepresented in the media. And, uh, and then there are independent outlets like Counterpunch that try to provide a counter-narrative that give a platform to independent political analysts, independent activist-minded uh, individuals, and I think... I think counterpunch is really critical in that way and so if you agree with that as i hope you do since you're listening to me here um consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine it's an excellent publication it really feels great to get it in your mailbox when it comes and to flip through it whether you're doing that on the train or whether you're doing that well in other parts of your home or wherever you might be doing that it's great it's a great way to uh support counterpunch the entire counterpunch project which is i mean this is a this is a small crew of people who put in a lot of effort to bring you as much uh, high quality political analysis from a left perspective as is possible. So I think it's really um, it's really great when we can support our fellow uh, activists and our fellow uh, political travelers. Um, that being said, I would also recommend if you could positive reviews on iTunes really help Counterpunch Radio uh, be brought to more listeners to drive it up those recommendation charts and a uh, real big thank you to those of you who who have already done that. So um, with that being said, I want to turn to my first guest this week. You know, um, we're marking the 10-year anniversary of Katrina here, and um, Hurricane Katrina, that is. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about how I might go about doing that. And quite frankly, I happen to be fortunate enough to know a couple of different people who are really, I, I think, some of the experts on this issue. And I am joined by one of them, a good friend of Counterpunch, a friend of mine via social media and a fellow political traveler, Gilbert Mercier. He is the editor-in-chief of News Junkie Post. He has some interesting experiences uh, around Katrina and the city of New Orleans, and so I'm really happy to have him on. Gilbert, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Eric. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure. So it's, well, the pleasure is all mine, let me say that off the bat. And um, let me say this, I have read a lot of your work. I read pretty much everything uh, that, that you post, and I mean, it's all really top-notch, but when I come across your piece on uh, Katrina and reflecting on Katrina, and then I looked at your uh, photography that you had taken there, because aside from being an editor and a, a journalist, you're also a filmmaker and a photographer. And when I'm looking at this work, I mean, it is really powerful, and it reminds me uh, of 10 years ago watching what was happening. So I want to begin there. Take us through what your personal Why? experiences well were. Uh, 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 thank you, Eric. I, I just want to say that uh, that to me, the the uh, the nightmare of Katrina was completely personal from the get go. I used to own a lovely Victorian house in New Orleans in an area of town that's called Uptown, 
And when, when Katrina was starting to form and roaming, uh, starting to roam through the, the, uh, the Gulf, I was actually in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I, um, I managed to, uh, to sort of skip my, my obligation there. I was actually working, and I, I, uh, I made my way back to New Orleans as quickly as I could. And I, I landed in New Orleans the 1st of September, and uh, I landed when the big crew of the, the mainstream media, uh, well, they, no, they didn't really quite move on yet to another story, but the, the big uh, flashy Superdome story, all the stuff, uh, was pretty much they were already phasing it out. And then um, I was I was very lucky. My my house didn't have any damages, and I started just uh, kind of wandering around in in a war zone. I mean, there were no traffic light, nothing. Uh, very few civilian. Uh, everybody in the, in the aftermath of Katrina for at least two weeks, where everybody was carrying guns. Okay, uh, you had the gun from hire, uh, which our colleague Jeremy Scahill called the, the Praetorian Guard of the of the of the Empire, which are the, the the mercenary of Blackwater. They were first to come in, and I saw a few. Then very quickly they deployed the National Guards. Now also the the uh, the store owner uh, uh, were heavily armed and. Everybody in New Orleans, pretty much, including myself, uh, uh, was wearing, you know, combat fatigue type of gear. It was very, very, uh, very, a very tricky situation. And what I saw, what I saw was the the complete uh, uh, failure of absolutely all government instances. I'm talking about. The, the failure of the mayor of the time, his name, uh, people might have forgotten his name, is uh, Ray Nagan. Uh, he actually just um, got into some kind of legal trouble from, for some corruption. Uh, uh, the, the governor was out of the loop, and of course, the Bush administration, well, they were just the Bush administration. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it was just uh, well, the rich people, the the uh, the wealthy people, the people that had cars and could afford an airplane ticket, they left. The other one didn't. So it's it's really a, a study in it's a study in uh, lack of any care. And I know that a lot of people were saying, oh well. You know, the levy were, were exploded on purpose. Nonsense. I checked the levy, none of that happened. Uh, it, New Orleans happened because the infrastructure of this, of this country is completely broken. Nothing is working. 
Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And actually, you touched on, I think, two different and equally important points. On the one hand, the collapse of uh, our urban infrastructure, particularly in uh, lower income areas, as you as you saw, particularly susceptible in, in New Orleans and certain communities there. And then the other thing you pointed to, the militarization of this country, the militarization of the responses. And this is something that's really become, I think, uh, routine in our minds in the last few years since Katrina. I mean, we saw it in Boston after the Boston bombing, uh, the imposition of martial law. You saw it in Baltimore. You've seen it in Ferguson. So I think that both of these themes are critical. Absolutely, Eric. This is the reflex of the empire. The the reflex of the empire is not to help the helpless. It's to uh, send people with guns, as many as they can. The, the, that's the issue. Uh, uh, there were a big deal of, of, of hoopla on, on mainstream media about the looting. There was barely any looting at all. Yeah, and, you know, what? well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, how did you perceive that media uh, treatment of that issue? I mean, do you think that this was constructed for political reasons, or do you think this was just the natural racist reaction? Both? No, they just, you know, they cover it. I mean, of course, they, they, there's the, 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 the famous story of Brian Williams and digging up that body, uh, which was, of course, a complete lie, because Brian Williams, which I saw, was staying at the Ritz-Carlton in the, in the French Quarter. The, the French Quarter didn't get affected by the, uh, by the, the flood at all. Uh, uh, neither did my area of town of the Garden District. The, the wealthy area in New Orleans are on higher ground. So, uh, uh, you know, they cover the story, well, the way they cover the story, uh, which is, uh, well, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very sad. We, we must do something and, you know, and, and then there was a situation of, you know, I, I mean, everybody was panicking and Wayne Aiken was panicking and trying to pretend he was doing something and it, it's a joke. Yeah. Really. I mean, the, the, the inepsy of this, uh, of the government at the time and, and the government now because it, it has an improved, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, it just reminds me of the coverage of of looting. You know, I wrote about this in Counterpunch recently. There's a politics behind the way that, quote unquote, looting is covered and violence and these things. And there's always a political uh, reason behind that and why they covered that. And what you're talking about, I think, was suppressed in the narrative. I've read accounts of, uh, of armed white people being able to protect their homes, protect their property while uh, armed black people were singled out and targeted. When I was in New Orleans recently, I spoke to a resident who told me that uh, she, who who lived in the community, one of the most affected communities, she had two cars. Her family was packed. They were ready to leave, and they were barred by law enforcement from crossing the bridge into the white community. Absolutely. Let's give let's let's give your your the listener of counterpunch a, a few data because we need we need some data okay uh, in New Orleans uh, before Katrina uh, the the uh, the number of inhabitants of New Orleans was about half of a million okay after in the Katrina after aftermath 
50% left. Okay? Uh, New Orleans, before Katrina, was a black town with a black mayor. He became a white town. And there's an anecdote here that I must tell. Uh, I was having a drink at a bar in the French Quarter, and there were a Blackwater guy. Okay, well, I did. I didn't ask him if he was a Blackwater guy, but I could tell. Talking with the bartender. And what they were talking about, they were saying, they were using the, the N-word, and they were saying, well, uh, uh, the wrong people will leave, so it could be a good thing. See, the thing is, Katrina, in a sense, it's sort of like ethnic cleansing with like a big, big socioeconomical ingredient. The poor had to leave. The people that didn't carry a flood insurance, which is, by the way, uh, uh, it was uh, part of a federal program. Of course I had a uh, flood insurance because I could pay it. Those people couldn't afford it. So they lost everything. They lost absolutely everything. And they got... Uh, the the uh, the difference between now in ten years, New Orleans has has lost one hundred thousand people. Okay, one hundred thousand people, mainly black, were scattered to the wind. They went to Texas, to to Georgia, to whatever they could find a family member to host them. Yeah, and you know the the other thing that occurs to me um, in thinking about this, you know, it reminds me. I think it was Rahm Emanuel who said, to, "Never to let a good disaster go to waste." And you know, the exploitation and the sort of uh, using this this disaster that befell New Orleans as a means of achieving the sort of socioeconomic change that the white bourgeois class in that city had wanted for generations. Look, look. 120 billion of federal money was allocated to New Orleans. 75% of it was spent on emergency relief, not to rebuild the city. They had no intention of rebuilding the Low Nines world or the Seven Nines world. They had no intention to, to, to rebuild the poor area. Yes. Well, but I, I want to also add to that, just for listeners who haven't followed this uh, closely, that when we're talking about rebuilding, when Gilbert says the rebuilding, we're not simply talking about spending money to rebuild, physically rebuilding structures. We're talking about remaking all of the municipal institutions. They completely destroyed and eviscerated uh, public education in New Orleans, completely, almost 100% charterizing the school system as has been been documented by many people. They were destroying public housing, the public housing programs, various other programs, all because of Katrina. In that way, they capitalized on it, and I I used the word capitalized on purpose. you see, you see, Eric, uh, uh, Katrina and what happened to the is 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 a snapshot of uh, uh, the type of, of philosophy, if you can call it, at that of what what I call and other people call disaster capitalist, yes. and and that type of policy uh, is what uh, happened to Detroit, Michigan. Uh, it's a policy where well, when there's a natural disaster, okay, you don't rebuild. You allocate some money that just 
Shenzhen and kind of disappear, like, for example, Haiti. You know, my, my estimated colleague at the Jackie Post, Daddy Sherry, writes extensively about that. And as a matter of fact, there's an anecdote here. There's a lot of anecdotes. The one of the big standing was to give people all those wonderful FEMA trailers that were manufactured in Florida. Unfortunately, the FEMA trailer had a big problem. They used some kind of formaldehyde to uh, 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 make insulation for the trailer. And then after that, this is the way the system worked. Uh, in 2010, they had FEMA at all those uh, uh, category trailers, and they got recycled where? To Haiti, of course. Yeah, exactly right. And and just like with New Orleans, Haiti is completely, uh, I mean, it's nowhere near rebuilt, let alone having recovered. And I think that um, I would argue that this is very much by design for very political and economic reasons. Look, look. Design or incomplete uh, stupidity. Uh, uh, it it could be one or the other. And a combination but of bottom all line, three. Bottom line. <laughs> they always seize the opportunity, and it's like what's going on in Syria. You write a lot about Syria. It's the same thing. You destroy your place, like that it is in Iraq. You destroy your place. You never rebuild it. You never do. You don't. You, you don't you don't, physically re, you don't physically rebuild it, but you certainly do secure the contracts for your friends in the corporate world. Absolutely, that's the model. Yeah, and I want to just I want to touch in the in the couple of minutes that we have remaining. I want to touch on um, how you view the situation there now. I know that um, you're you're not living there regularly anymore, but you've been back a number of times, and I want to get a sense of how do you view the city now? Uh, not only in terms of the demography and the economy, but culturally speaking. I mean, is it is it well, forever scarred? Look, I I love New Orleans. New Orleans is is to me the the most fabulous city of America. It's 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 a very old city, and and I'm I'm a I'm a French citizen, and and of course you know New Orleans was French just like Haiti, and and it got sold by Napoleon to Thomas Jefferson in in eighteen in eighteen oh four. Okay, but so it, to me it has culture. It has jazz. The people are lively. It it's got a European feeling, but it's not the same feeling now than the, what it used to be. Yeah, and I was actually just there recently, and um, I had been there before Katrina, and I have been there since Katrina, and. Uh, not only is there something missing, I, you almost feel like the divide, the, the cultural divide there is is so much starker than it once was. And I, I feel like there's a self-contained tourist attraction in the French Quarter, and then there's a devastated city everywhere else. No, no, not exactly. You have the French Quarter, you have the warehouse district, you have the business district area, you have Garden District with all those beautiful Victorian houses, you have Uptown, and you have some great university. Uh, uh, the rest, Midtown, did get rebuilt, but again, Eric, it got rebuilt. I met wonderful people that basically said, okay, nobody's helping us, we're going to do it on our own. And they did. Some of them did. 
the strong one. I mean, it's 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 an it's an experiment in social Darwinism. That's what this country is about. Well, I would I would totally agree with you there, and I think that uh, not only is it an experiment, I think that it is a a very clear commentary on what the United States is, and I think that the notion of quote unquote progress is something that, as you know, and I, I know that you've talked about this before yourself, the age of Obama is supposed to be a quote unquote post racial age, isn't it? And yet, oh, that's nonsense. Of course, it's that's nonsense. nonsense. But you see this, you see this quite clearly in a place like New Orleans. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. uh, uh, Since the election of Obama, the core value of the policy have not changed at all, both in foreign policy and domestic policy. Look at Ferguson. Yeah, exactly right. Or or Baltimore or any of these cities. I mean, Baltimore, Detroit, all of these uh, predominantly black cities that had black political leadership that uh, have really in many ways been eviscerated just as the black working Absolutely. class has been eviscerated I mean, in the United States. This country, since Katrina, has manufactured internal refugees. There's internal refugees here. Refugees from from disaster capitalism. That's what they are. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, in in closing, I just want to give you a chance to. Um just to kind of reiterate this this important point that I think, and this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to lead off the uh, the conversations this week with you, Gilbert, to make this point that New Orleans and all of the, the, the hand-wringing and all of the waxing poetic that we hear on this 10-year anniversary of Katrina, that New Orleans is not an isolated incident, that it is really, I think, emblematic of this larger process that we've seen developing in the United States and around the oh. world. So just draw that out one more time for listeners. I'll tell you what it is. It, it knew, knew, knew Katrina and what happened to Katrina and and people became aware of it. They became aware worldwide uh, that that needs this superpower that that could do pretty much militarily at least anything they want in the world. They're the third world country. Within that's what people became aware of, but then they quickly forgot. See, that's the problem. Because people suffer from amnesia. And so they, they need to be reminded from time to time. But none of the issues that are the primary issue have been addressed. Climate change, no. Oil is extremely cheap. None of it has been, uh, uh, has been addressed. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, and that the line, and this is one thing that I always reiterate, that the line between quote-unquote foreign policy issues and quote-unquote domestic issues is really somewhat arbitrary because much of the kind of policies that the U.S. enacts around the world, it's doing very similar things at home. They follow one way or another, and I'm not saying, do, do not say that I'm, I'm saying it's absolutely a plan. If it's a plan, it's a crazy plan. Uh, uh, they follow the simple model. We break, we wreck everything, we never rebuild, we extract the resources. That's it. In other words, uh, colonialism and imperialism and capitalism. That's it. 
Thank you. I, I, I want to thank you for coming on the program, Gilbert. Uh, y- your perspective is always appreciated. Uh, listeners, Gilbert's work is some of the best. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to be in touch with him on social media. We share each other's work. I, I read his stuff all the time. News Junkie Post is a is an outlet, an independent media outlet that everybody should be following. Um, thank you again, Gilbert Mercier, Editor-in-Chief, News Junkie Post. Thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you for having me, Alec. It was my pleasure. And listeners, stick with us after the break. We're going to have much more on Katrina, people's experiences, the politics, the political context within which this must be understood. All that and more. Come right back with us. What the hell was that tonight? What do you think I'm here for? <laughs> <laughs> Run with me, boys. New Orleans! New Orleans! Miss New Orleans and miss it each night and day. I know I'm not wrong. The feeling's getting stronger the longer I stay away. Miss the moss-covered vines, the tall sugar pines, where mockingbirds used to sing. And I'd like to see the lazy Mississippi a hurrying to spring. The Mardi Gras memories of Creole tunes that fill the air. I dream of oleanders in June. And soon I'm wishing that I was there. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans when that's where you left your heart? And there's something more. I miss the one I care for. More than I miss New Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, but of course you already knew that because you just listened to a segment uh, with Gilbert Mercier talking about his experiences in New Orleans, some of the political context, and I, I wanted well, what. Let me put it this way: one of the things that I'm really excited about this week is that I have the opportunity to talk to a couple of different people and focusing on a number of uh, different angles to this Katrina story because this is a story. This is a narrative that's been written over the course of these last ten years, and some of the ways in which the media has tried to write the narrative uh, with its usual uh, disinformation, misinformation, and uh, cultural amnesia, I think needs to. To be countered as we look back on it. We don't want to just, you know, have the usual, well, let's mark the anniversary and let's move on. I want to understand some of these really critical issues and to help us with that, um, I am pleased to be able to introduce Daniel Wolf onto Counterpunch Radio. Daniel is an author, poet, and filmmaker. Uh, one of his um, one of his most famous books that you may have come across was uh, The Fight for Home, How Parts of New Orleans Came Back. Uh, he's also a colleague of the well 
well-known uh, director Jonathan Demme, and they worked together on the classic film I'm Carolyn Parker. And um, he also has a new one coming out, New Home Movies from the Lower Ninth Ward, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So uh, with those credits out of the way, Daniel, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, the pleasure is all mine, but I want to let's dispense with the niceties since we have such limited time. And I want to talk about this. We're, of course, looking back, it's 10 years after Katrina. It's almost hard to believe that it's been that long, but so it has. Now, the movie, I'm Carolyn Parker, may be a movie that some people are familiar with, and it tells the story of this really amazing woman and her experiences and the trials and tribulations that she's gone through. So can you just tell us a little bit about the film? What was the impetus for making that film, and what was the experiences that you and Jonathan and the rest of the crew had in making it? Yeah, well, first of all, there was no rest of the crew. Um, so my credit is producer, I've always said, mostly meant driving the car while Jonathan shot out of the window. Um, we were, we were bare bones. We went down, uh, I guess five months after the flood, um, out of a sort of obligation because we thought it was the most important story of the 21st century in America at the time. Um, I still may think that, and we just kind of winged it, um, you know, we we rented a car and drove from the airport, and people kept saying, uh, yeah, this is terrible here, but go that way, it's even worse. Mm. Eventually, we got down to the Lower Ninth Ward in the Holy Cross neighborhood, and um, the the movie actually begins the way it really happened, which is that we're filming just ruins on the street, and Carolyn Parker comes to her door and says, hi, I'm Carolyn Parker. And we introduce ourselves, and she says, well, come on in. And she... Uh, was at the time, I guess, in her 40s or 50s, uh, a single mom of two kids, and they had grown kids. And she had been one of the first back into the neighborhood. She had uh, fled just before the flood, but came back as soon as she could and just refused to leave. You know, they kept saying that no one could live in her neighborhood, and she she wasn't going to listen to it. Um, So Jonathan and I originally had thought we were going to maybe go down for... um, just the first visit, and then we thought, okay, we'll do we'll do four visits. We'll do one each season for a year, and you know that'll tell the story of the Katrina recovery. We were naive at the time, um, and then you know we got to be friends with a bunch of people, including Carolyn, and kind of made a vow to ourselves that would keep coming back till they got in their homes. Mm. Uh, and for Carolyn, it was six years till she was actually back in her house. She camped in it. She lived in a FEMA trailer behind it, but she didn't actually move in. Uh, and you can see in the film, you know, for six years, it was extraordinary, her resilience. Um, and we we uh, made sure that we were going to be there until that was over. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that's really striking, I think, about the project, and really, uh, in many ways, this is, of course, also true of your writing project and, and in your book, is that there's sort of a, I don't want to call it attention in a negative way, but there's sort of this uh, confluence or, or complementary nature in the work where on the one hand, you're essentially documenting what is happening in a very factual way. And on another hand, there's a grander narrative that's being told here, a story that's 
being woven together. And I wanted to just get your take a little bit on that. I mean, how do you see that sort of interplay between the two, documenting what happened on the one hand and really telling a compelling story, not just a personal story, but I think in my mind, from my political perspective, one that speaks really to what America is about? Well, you know, we realized pretty soon into it, maybe a year into it, that the story began before the flooding and yeah. was going to continue a long time afterwards. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was a story that uh, certainly in my book, in The Fight for Home, I wanted the people to tell. My voice, you know, is in there sort of subtly, but it's almost totally the voices of the people like Carolyn Parker and other people we met down there. So a whole array of them telling their stories. And they saw it as part of a bigger political picture. I mean, you know, the, the, the point for them had been that they were being screwed in New Orleans before the flood. They were being screwed again after the flood and during the recovery and what that amounted to. And Carolyn was a cook. Her daughter's now a cook. Uh, almost all the people we met in the Lower Ninth Ward were living the, the downside of a tourist economy. Mm-hmm. They were the service economy. They were the servants in the service economy. And, and they didn't like it, and, they, and they, one of their hopes in the recovery was that the city was going to change, that there had to be a better way to run the place and a better economic picture than that. Um, and that was, for me, part of the kind of hope and the tragedy of this story was these people fighting, you know, not just to get back in their homes, but to get a decent life, to have some health care, to, you know, Callan used to get in a bus and travel 45 minutes to get to the closest supermarket and then lug her groceries back. You know, it was that kind of setup. Yeah, and I, I guess what you're alluding to and what uh, what we were talking about in the previous segment um, with uh, Gilbert Mercier is this is this question of, well, uh, to put it bluntly, disaster capitalism and the way in which New Orleans was in, in many ways uh, made into a laboratory, an experiment within the United States for how a city could be socioeconomically transformed, to put it nicely, or maybe ethnically cleansed, to put it not so nicely. And um, so talk a little bit about that, how, how you view the processes that uh, New Orleans went through in its quote-unquote transformation. Yeah, I don't think, I agree with you. I don't think it's any different than Detroit or Baltimore or, uh, you know, St. Louis or a bunch of other places. Exactly. I think the, the flooding sped up the process um, because, you know, it worked as instant urban renewal. Uh especially the poorest people in the city, had to leave. In New Orleans, rather than living on the wrong side of the tracks, what happens is you live in the low-lying areas, and they're, they're going to flood quicker. That's, that's the quote-unquote bad parts of town. Those people had to get out of the city or drown, and some of them drowned, as we know. Uh, and, and that meant that they had a city emptied of the poorest elements. And, and that gave them what you're saying. That gave them the chance to run a laboratory. But I think the same laboratory is happening in other major American cities, which is, you know, how do we have a cheerful millennial economy uh, that eliminates people of color and poor people? And, and that's what happened in New Orleans. You know, one of the striking things for me in my book was a lot of the people I talked to obviously didn't know each other, but a lot of them came up with the same phrase within about six months. And the phrase exactly quoted 
by these different people all over the city was, you know, I'm starting to think they don't want us to come back. Mm-hmm. And and that we kept finding over and over again. And again, it, it was the people in the city who were telling this big picture, which is, you know, this is not a recovery. They don't want us to come back. They don't, they don't want a family that's owned a house in the lower ninth ward for four generations to keep it. They want to start again. They see a cleaner, uh, whiter um, city that's going to come out of this, richer city that's going to come out of it. Yeah, and you know, it's I, I was mentioning it in the previous segment as well, talk, talking about this issue of um, you know exploiting these disasters. Naomi Klein famously wrote about this in Shock Doctrine. Many other people have written about disaster capitalism and what it allows you to do. And so, what we saw in New Orleans, and just uh, for a little bit of uh, disclosure here, um, I, I have a bit of a background in education. I was a teacher in public schools in Harlem and in Brooklyn, and I'm a little bit sensitive to the issue of charter schools. Schools and the privatization of education in New Orleans is uh, sort of the you know the model by which this entire charterization privatization movement has really been pushing in the last ten years, and I think that this is really indicative of what they did to New Orleans. They wanted to not only strip it away of black people, they wanted to strip it away of the very institutions, public institutions that made the bedrock of that culture. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. One of the things we kept running into was that why people stayed in Houston and Dallas and Baton Rouge instead of coming back was there were no school systems running. You know, they fired, as you know, they fired all of the public teachers, some 7,000 is my memory, in New Orleans, uh, and started all over again. And and what it meant was that even if if your house could be salvaged, you couldn't come back because your kids didn't have any school to go to. and yeah, and the charter school situation since then, I think, has been the same as you say across the country, which is that uh, the charter schools tend tend to test better because of the kind of education they're doing, and because they're eliminating a bunch of kids uh, who wouldn't test as well. Um, so again, you're ghettoizing kids through their education. Yeah, it's a it's a form of resegregating the 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 processes by which desegregation had occurred, and I think that um, you know one of the other one of the other guests on this week, hopefully assuming everything with scheduling works, is um, going to talk about the way in which uh, some of the so-called nonprofit institutions really purged the political radicalism that had existed in New Orleans in the 1970s and the 1980s, such that by the 90s and the early 2000s, the uh, political structures for resistance, especially radical resistance, were almost completely gone, and they had been sort of monopolized by these corporatized Democratic Party-linked NGOs that were part of the political machine of the city. Right. You know, what I, I have a friend who, whose take on, on the fight for home, this book I wrote, was that it was a kind of organizer's manual because um, part of what we kept running into was the different groups that were trying to fight back against this. Um, you know, I think New Orleans, and this maybe doesn't get mentioned as much, is, is also a failure of the left. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, disaster, uh, disasters are an opportunity for all kinds of people. And, and here was a chance, and a lot of people saw it, if the city was going to rebuild itself, to try to organize it in a way that was more progressive, 
uh, and there were a lot of groups that worked very hard and, and couldn't get there. Um, it didn't happen, you know. You and uh, I'm hesitating only because I don't know where you put the blame on that. I knew a lot of people, and they worked very hard. But at the end of the day, you get a city that, um, as you said, whether it's health care or education or housing, has gone uh, the opposite direction from what you and I probably would have liked to have seen. Yeah, and I think that it's not so much necessarily about ascribing blame as it is about being able to sort of diagnose what was that root cause for why the left failed, why radicalism didn't exist, why real uh, community-based solutions and organizing didn't happen. And I think at least part of the reason, and certainly it's complex, but part of the reason is because those who were on the ground who were going to do the heavy lifting of organizing work to various extents were caught up in this NGO non-profit complex plus the sort of I guess we could say pernicious impact of uh, larger organizations the Red Cross and FEMA and all of the rest of them that came in with their money but only a certain kind of money a sort of crony capitalist sort of money yeah no I think that's fair you know a part of the problem (laughs) bluntly was if you're going to do community organizing you need to have a community and here was this empty city uh, so that a lot of people who were doing the organizing were from out of town, were from volunteers, were volunteers, and uh, gradually as the city came back, they tried, you know, to, to do sort of classic organizing, but by then, I, the powers that be were pretty much back in control. Um, so, you know, the Common Ground was one of the major organizers that we talked to and, and tried to do a great job down in the Lower Ninth Ward, and and made some real gains when nobody was living there. I know that sounds absurd, but we're trying to organize in a more cooperative, community-minded way. But there wasn't a community there, really. And when people came back, uh, it was very hard to, to, to have that organizing take root. It, it, it didn't happen. They're still down there. They're still doing some good work. But it isn't the city they dreamed of. One of the other things that that strikes me about this whole uh, uh, period of history in New Orleans, and because that's what it is, is the sort of really ominous um, signal I think that it portends for much of the country. Because you saw in New Orleans what we've now seen in Boston, in Ferguson, in Baltimore, the militarization of society of these institutions and how that translates on the streets. Gilbert and I were talking about in the previous segment uh, when he was down there um, after taking care of his home and going out and photographing the city that he would run into these Blackwater troops or you know various other private military contractors and sort of the nefarious things that they were doing. I think a lot of this now is common knowledge that the U.S. does this, but 10 years ago it was unthinkable that, my God, could we do to an American city what we're now doing, what we're doing at the time in Baghdad? Right. One of the stories that that I loved out of this was there was a fellow we met called Mike in St. Bernard Parish. St. Bernard is just east of New Orleans and is a was a 95% white parish before the flood. Um, it was where people fled New Orleans when the schools were integrated. And Mike first gets spotted by an organizer for Common Ground because his, he's back early and his house has a Confederate flag flying on it. And, he, you know, he, he would say to me, you know, I wasn't prejudiced, but 
Well, there was some of that. And um, he goes out on the street, and these trucks are going by and ruining the street and keeping his kids awake, and he tries to stop one. And, and a private security guy comes out and knocks him down. And, and Mike gets radicalized by this. Mike says, wait a second, I, this isn't the country I believe in, and ends up buddies with the black organizers for Common Ground, partly because he doesn't want to live in a security state. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and it's one of the, you know, that sort of transformation did happen on the individual label, level, and it was, you know, exciting and I think hopeful. Yeah, and like I was saying, I, I would agree with you, but you know, this is and part of my work, of course. A lot of my work is focused on international issues, political issues, war and peace, and so forth. And you know, I one of the things that I want to get across in looking back at Katrina and the Bush administration, but it's certainly not specific to the Bush administration. I think it's really uh, indicative of the imperial uh, system that the United States is ahead of, and uh, and that is the relationship between how the United States acts at home and what it does abroad. I think that this is critical because if you're outraged by Katrina and New Orleans and and all of these issues, how can you not be outraged by Iraq and Libya and Syria and Yemen and all of these other places? Yeah, and vice versa, I think. I mean, if if what you're paying attention to is the foreign policy, Take a look next door because you'll find its reflection going on there. I think you're right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, we were alluding to it earlier, Detroit and and Baltimore and Oakland and all of these places. I mean, a lot of the there's not a Katrina necessarily, but a lot of these issues are really, I think, across the board, uh, very, very important in all of these communities. And, you know, we've seen it around the world as well. I mean, in Haiti, we had uh, this devastating earthquake in 2010. Those people are still living in the FEMA trailers, and in fact, they're secondhand from New Orleans. Right, right, exactly. And they were, you know, they were condemned in New Orleans as being uh, unsafe and unhealthy. Uh, right. and we found perfectly, fit. No. <laughs> perfectly yeah. fit for Haitian consumption, sure. Yeah. Um, no, it, 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 it's part and parcel of the same deal. I think you're right. Uh, so in the in the time that we have remaining, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your new project. Um, what what have you been up to? What's um, in in the works? Uh, I don't know. Are you doing any follow up work with some of the same subjects? Or yeah. Are you moving on to something new? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So we Jonathan and I had have a vision of five films that are going to come out of this. We've done two. New Home Movies from the Lower Ninth Ward was is a sort of overview of the people we met. Um, and it, it came out of, it was, parts of it were shown on Tabith Smiley's show, the first anniversary, he did five nights of our material. We kind of put that together in a movie. Then there's I'm Carolyn Parker, which is the portrait of this woman who comes back early. There are three other biopics, you can call them, which are, uh, include a, a close look at the Lower Ninth Ward in Common Grounds organizing and, and how that did and didn't succeed in enacting a progressive vision in New Orleans. And there are a couple other families that I'll keep secret for now, but will eventually be movies. It's a question of us finding, essentially, the money and the time to make these. But we will, because exactly what we've been talking about, which is when we went down there five months later, people said to us, oh, that's an old story. There's Katrina fatigue already. Uh, You know, people have seen the headlines and they're done 
you know, it wasn't done five months later. It wasn't done five years later. It isn't done ten years later. It's an ongoing story because it uncovers all of this information and truth about how our country works. Absolutely. Well, in in closing, um, I just want to ask, and I know this is sort of a broad question. I almost feel silly asking it as an interviewer, but I'm going to anyway. No. I'm going to anyway. Um, history is history is an interesting thing, and these narratives about all of these you know important uh, episodes in history, especially the history that we live through. I think the way that they're written is critical, and I mean you know one of the sort of um, awakening moments or or defining moments of my political evolution was demonstrating against the Iraq war and watching how that conflict evolved and it informed a lot of my own activism and a lot of my work and I think that Katrina is one of these things that needs to inform people for how they uh, perceive political issues, economic issues, and how they organize and and, and activate themselves. So um, what would you say if somebody says, well, what lessons do we really need to take from that? I'm going to watch your movies. I'm going to read your books. What is it that you want to distill for people, maybe kids who haven't even yet been born? Yeah, that is a big question. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, let me put this bluntly, I think you want to keep your eye on who's getting fucked. Yep. And, and it is almost inevitably the poor people and the people of color. And that their story is, is, is the key story in all of this. Uh, it's easy to forget about, it's easy to overlook, whether it's in Iraq or whether it's in New Orleans. Um, and, and I think that, that as, as consumers of the news and as journalists who make the news, that's where we have to be paying attention. Because, you know, that's the real crux of the issue. New Orleans was an extreme example but as we've talked about, you'll see it next door tomorrow. Um, and that's why when any of these big events happen, it seems to me it's a chance to learn. It's an opportunity to organize. And it's hopefully uh, a moment to start building a better future. Beautifully said. I want to thank you for coming on the program. Again, uh, listeners, you've been listening to my conversation with Daniel Wolf. Um, again, the book, a really important uh, a book and historical document, in fact, The Fight for Home, How Parts of New Orleans Came Back. Do check it out. Do pick up your copy. Check out the movie. I'm Carolyn Parker and all of uh, Daniel's work. Daniel Wolf, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me, Eric. And uh, listeners, stick with us, and uh, we'll be back, and a lot more to talk about as we look back at 10 years after Katrina. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Going back home, T-90, to the land of the beautiful queen. Going back home to my baby, going back to New Orleans. On the step, here comes the Neville brothers.
Going back home, need I need And never more will I roam Gonna get my bills that I need to pay Cause you all is in my home Is that a jumbo jet? No, that's Big Al coming to put a hood on it Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio, and um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation so far. I think we got some very interesting perspectives from two very distinctly different uh, uh, positions, different experiences, and um, that's part of what it is I want to do here as we look back 10 years after Katrina, is to provide a number of uh, critical examinations of what happened, and one of the things that I wanted to touch on is the politics of the community community there and what that tells us about how all of these processes have evolved. And I think I can't really think of anybody better to have on the program to discuss some of those issues than Jay Arena, a a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, someone I've known for a couple of years now and whose work I really admire. He is an assistant professor at the College of Staten Island. He is the author of the 2012 book, an absolute must read called Driven from New Orleans, How Nonprofits Betray Public Health housing and promote privatization. Uh, Jay was also a resident of New Orleans for more than 20 years. He was an organizer, a labor organizer, and a community organizer. So he knows these issues really inside and out. So it's my pleasure to welcome Jay Arena to Counterpunch Radio. Hi, Jay. Hi, Eric. Uh, thanks for that kind introduction. No, thank you for coming on. I, I know you have a wealth of uh, knowledge about this, and I and I really want to dig into some of that. But before we get into uh, some of this historical issues and, and, and nonprofits and all of the rest of that, mm-hmm. you're in New Orleans right now. I know that you you uh, right. you live primarily here in New York. You're my neighbor, so, so to speak. But right. you're in New Orleans now. A lot's going on. So maybe you could give us a little bit of an update. What's happening there as we mark this? This ten-year anniversary. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a circus. Uh, there's a number of uh, a variety of commemorations going on. Uh, the major ones put on by the local rulers and their philanthropic uh, and corporate allies uh, include the uh, Mayor Landrew, Mitch Landrew, um, a, a commemoration uh, that's been working with Walmart tomorrow. They're going to have a day of volunteerism. Uh, that somehow that's the way we can uh, rebuild, uh, rebuild the city. Um, and there's Mark Morial, the former mayor, now head of the National Urban League. He's had a, a, a commemoration uh, affair at the uh, at the Hyatt Hotel that's brought in especially a lot of the uh, charter school supporters, which he's championed. 
as head of the Urban League and the Atlantic Magazine uh, had another uh, event. And all of these are kind of tied together by their celebration of the new New Orleans, the mm-hmm. New Orleans Renaissance, of uh, the New Orleans model in which they want to export the reforms, so-called reforms around uh, privatizing education, uh, the school, the uh, hospitals, the public housing, um, the uh, mass gentrification increase in property values, all not by a free market model, but by massive state intervention. This is what they declare as a, as a victory. And the, what critiques they have are very narrow that, that fit within what's permissible uh, within neoliberalism. But, uh, uh, and then there is uh, there's some nonprofits, supposedly radical nonprofits, uh, but that are well-funded by the foundations that are also having some uh, events that are, aren't really critical either. But there will be uh, on Sunday a uh, what we're calling uh, a People's History of Hurricane Katrina Conference, which in contrast to the Landrew and Moriel um, events, which basically look at the Katrina from the perspective of the rulers from above, um, the challenges that they faced and what they need to do Uh, in the future. But uh, in contrast, our people's history of Hurricane Katrina is looking at it from the the Katrina and the so-called recovery, the 10 years since, from the perspective of public housing residents, public school teachers, uh, low-income folks that relied on charity hospital, uh, those that worked in the, that continue to work in the tourist sector, from their perspective uh, of what the impact of Katrina was the struggles that were mounted to uh, to challenge the imposition of the so-called New Orleans model and to lay out what would a real reconstruction of uh, New Orleans, the United States, and the world and entail. And we have a number of frontline activists, people like Mike Howells of the public housing movement, Sharon Jasper, uh, people that were fought the uh, the police brutality uh, to bring to justice the the the, the uh, authorities, um, security officials that that carried out uh, atrocities uh, against Katrina survivors in the mm-hmm. immediate aftermath of the storm, as well as some really critical intellectuals like Adolf uh, Adolf Reed, uh, Cedric Johnson, and uh, Adrian Dixon. You know, it's fascinating that this is happening, and it, you know. I think it's really great. And you mentioned something there in your comments that I want to touch on before we look back on what happened in New Orleans. And that is the model that they're celebrating and this question of exporting that model, because it's clear to me that the attempt, and we've we've seen it already, the attempt to export Mm -hmm. it to places like Detroit, which is a devastated city for a number of other reasons, but devastated nonetheless, exporting it to places like Oakland and Chicago and New Newark, which I know you know pretty well. So, right. yeah, this exporting of this model, right. and really New Orleans is in many ways the template for that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, in 2010, a Tulane University, the elite uh, private university in the city, with, whose president was intimately involved in uh, the attack on public education and a number of the other uh, so-called reforms, along with the uh, Rockefeller Foundation, put out a conference uh, entitled New Orleans as a model for the 21st century, something to that mm. effect. But, mm. uh, they, yeah, they are, have touted this. And as you mentioned, 
uh, especially around charter schools, New Orleans, which is almost 100% charters, a few traditional public schools. Uh, but this has been uh, uh, the, a lot of the uh, commentary over the last several weeks has been touting, with some few exceptions, touting this as a, as a great success and improvement. And that, uh, you know, this is a battle for like places like Newark, uh, New Jersey, where, yes, the, the, so the education reformers, quote-unquote, have pointed to New Orleans as their model, and they and they have made great strides with the help of the Obama administration. I yes. mean, that's another, I think, aspect, uh, another lesson that we can take critical observers of the situation that it's often been portrayed it was just the bad old Bush administration, the bad old Republicans that imposed this model, but the Democrats and Obama have taken it uh, to a whole nother level. Uh, uh, Arne Duncan, the current education secretary, uh, Obama's basketball pal, infamously said a few years ago, um, uh, the best thing that ever happened to New Orleans public schools was Hurricane Katrina. Yep. He later apologized for that, but we he, he knew what he meant. We know what he meant was that, yes, this was a great opportunity to uh, fire all the teachers, break the teachers' uh, union contract, exactly, and, yep. uh, and impose all these charters. And they have, uh, we have seen with the race to the top, uh, uh, the federal government, the Obama administration, using their leverage to impose uh, privatization in charter schools much farther than the Bush administration was ever able to get away with. Yeah, you know, damn it, Jay, you hit my talking points. I was going to mention that, but you got it. Exactly. I mean, it's not just about transforming the schools themselves, transforming the system. It's about breaking the unions. It's about driving down wages, driving down costs, and creating this army of what what, what could be called almost like temporary workers on the Teach for America model, the Teaching Fellows model, and all of the rest of this. That's exactly the point. And New Orleans allowed them to do essentially almost like a a, a laboratory experiment right. for what they would love to do in other circumstances it provided that 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 critical uh, uh moment for experimentation right and and you know they use the storm the flooding the breaking of the the underfunded under uh, uh financed and and repaired levies to impose this agenda but in other places they're using like in detroit you mentioned the, the uh under the pretext of a, of a fiscal crisis, yes. manufactured fiscal crisis, to impose these. And, and even in some ways farther than uh, in New Orleans, for example, the uh, Urban Land Institute had come out with a report two months after Katrina about this redevelopment of, of the city, and they, uh, they had this map of all these green dots, which were areas that wouldn't be reconstructed at all like the lower ninth ward, but there was a real outcry and they had to back off that. Mm-hmm. But we do see in Detroit where they're just going to close down, you know, certain neighbors to uh, remove the public services um, and for, force people uh, to, to, to leave. Yeah. Uh, turning, turning yeah, them into no around the country, the crisis well, globally, you know, using this fiscal crisis, Puerto Rico being the next target yeah. um, to impose these draconian, uh, draconian cuts. We'll get a little bit later 
how we can kind of forge an alternative. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and and thank you for adding Puerto Rico in a more global context because that is exactly uh, true. Now we could go on that for for hours, but I want to talk right. a little bit, Jay, about your book because you know yeah. this is a really important uh, work that you put out there, and it may have flown under the radar for a lot of people. Uh-huh. So I want to promo uh-huh. it again just so people can get their hands on it. Driven from New Orleans, how nonprofits betray public housing and promote privatization. Talk a little bit about the the book, Jay, and specifically what you found in your research. I know you spent many years in New Orleans, so you knew it intimately. What you found, what was the premise, and or rather I should say maybe the thesis of your book for people to understand? Right. It, it did come out of kind of a, a conundrum uh, a problem I faced in, as an activist uh, around defending public services, uh, uh, in particular public housing, where you had in the 80s when I arrived a really, uh, you know, combative uh, uh, public housing movement, public housing tenants that were fighting that kind of first wave of austerity and neoliberal uh, retrenchment around uh, public services and public housing in particular. But by the 90s, I saw where a number of these uh tenant leaders and their kind of activist allies had gone from protests to insider negotiations with the developers and black public officials that were uh, intent on eliminating public housing, promoting and promoting gentrification. And so it was kind of, what explains that, right? What's behind that? And I think, you know, Naomi Klein's work on disaster capitalism, I think that's important, but I think one thing that she really doesn't do very well really doesn't engage is the the involvement of the construction of consent that you know disaster capitalism the way she promotes it is this top down but in fact we've seen uh, not only in the U.S. but globally how the ruling class has been able to generate a level of of consent mm-hmm. for these deeply reactionary policies and then I kind of very influenced by the work of Adolph Reed that's looking at what he calls the blacker regime so I'm looking at it in a particular political, geographical, historical context of a majority black city, which, of course, is a product of decades of uh, 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 racist real estate and uh, financial banking practices, uh, which emerges kind of as a majority black city, like many other cities around the country in the, the, the 1970s, and you have a new political regime of majority black uh public officials, city council, mayor, um, resting on a popular base of black working class folks predominantly, but allied at the same time with a white corporate elite in banking and real estate, tourism, as long with with a layer of upwardly mobile black professionals and and contractors. But um, the black agenda report, Bruce Dixon and uh, Glenn Ford termed the black misleadership class. And so they're deeply committed to this uh, uh, urban revanchist agenda, which involves getting rid of uh, public housing, of using federal resources and subsidies, uh, you know, city government, big government, to uh, finance real estate, to finance these uh, development initiatives and not to serve uh, the the black working class. And uh, so uh, I saw that the nonprofits, were really critical for winning over 
uh, gaining consent to the imposition of these deeply reactionary uh, a development agenda among the layer of the black working class. In this case, the uh, um, the public housing residents. And it was also I drew a lot from James Petrus's work mm-hmm. in Latin America. I think he was writing about this earlier than many others um, around neoliberalism in Latin America and the role of the NGO, which many have been kind of leftist uh, and they needed a hustle. And, you know, the, these people are well compensated. Uh, they're taken care of. And I saw a similar type process operating in uh, in New Orleans, pre-Katrina in New Orleans. And so that's the first part of the book and focusing on this one particular development, the St. Thomas, which went from like 1,500 public housing units under a, a redevelopment of the Hope Six, which was cooked up by the Clinton administration, um, uh, down to like 182. And, and that was part of the first wave of big displacement of low-income folks in New Orleans. Yeah, and one of the things that that strikes me in 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 looking at your work and in tying that in with some of my own research and and the work of others, you know, the relationship in so many people and I totally agree with you about Naomi Klein failing to make this connection as well. So many people right. act as if the even if they're critical of nonprofits and the and the NGO complex, they seem right. to forget to make the connection of who exactly funds the nonprofit machine right. and that it is right. finance right. capital it is Wall Street, right. it is the major corporations, yeah. it is the financial right. elites that control that entire complex. So in many ways, what you're talking about, the creation of consent, or to borrow Chomsky's phrase, you know, the manufacturing of consent right. within these communities right. is a tool, a weapon of the financial elites. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the new billionaire class that has been forged as part of the new class war you know, has generated these fortunes, they've turned around and to use them to manage uh, manage the social fall, fallout, direct the discontent in uh, acceptable uh, uh, avenues, uh, you know, is a, is a part to, to manage this, uh, you know, this capitalist system. So, yeah, I mean, the first thing you got to ask is who's getting paid? Yeah. Who's financing this? And, uh, that is crucial, and some people think that's just really reductionist, but I think any serious analysis uh, has to look, when you look at uh, a number of these activist groups that, on one level, are addressing uh, particular forms of oppression and injustice, but uh, and, and they're generally they're funded not by these conservative Forces, right? These are these, these are kind of liberal foundations. Yeah. Soros, Soros, Ford, and, yep. Um, uh, and, and there's a number, a host of Kellogg Foundation, MacArthur, they, all of them. Yep. MacArthur, definitely. And a lot of these were very heavily involved, especially around public housing and urban urban reform. And we know with the Walton and the Gates Foundation, wrote around uh, public schools, but they generally keep these groups focused on a particular single issue. Yes. Oftentimes tied to a particular oppression around race, uh, um, uh, gender, sexuality, ability, or uh, a combination thereof. So they're very much tied to a kind of identity politics. And uh, so they might be addressing a particular oppression, but they're really... um, 
uh, hostile to any kind of larger macro announced, particularly of capitalism and any kind of political um, struggle against the roots of the oppression that they're ostensibly ostensibly fighting. They're not interested. Uh, so they, they're a real obstacle to building a counter-hegemonic, you know, to draw on Gramsci and, and Chomsky. I didn't ever think about how that rhymes. But uh, <laughs> so they're a real obstacle to building a, a fight back. And I think there is growing awareness uh, around, you know, the role that they, the role that, which I think, and that was one of the major aims of the book. What are the lessons that we can draw from this real tragedy, disaster in New Orleans for strengthening our struggles going forward? Yeah, exactly. I was just gonna. I was just gonna add, although I think you kind of touched on it, is that you know they'll talk about all forms of oppression and all forms of uh, of activism, except for organizing around class, except for organizing broad based coalitions to take on these larger issues. They would much rather keep it very much fragmented and within their you know mandated uh, uh, single issue mission. And I think that's part right. of the problem. And one of the other things, and I know it's sort of implicit in what you're saying, but I just want to make it explicit here, is connection and tie to the Democratic Party. Right, yeah, and that's basically that single-issue approach allows them to fit themselves, although they, you know, as a 501c3, they can't really endorse any not formally, party, right, not but their formally, politics yeah. all segue, all dovetail with the Democratic uh, the Democratic Party, and they are real extension. In fact, Obama, I mean, comes out of that milieu. When they talk exactly. about being a community organizer, he was in one of these church-based 501c3s uh, funded by the, the, the foundations. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, and, and his uh, current politics aren't really deviating much from when he was that, you know, frontline community activist in Chicago. Yeah, exactly. You know, I know we're running out of time, but before yeah. we get into solutions and stuff, because I do want to touch on that at the end here, I want to just yeah. ask you, and I actually don't know the answer to this, so I'd really like to know, you came you came to New Orleans in the 80s, and you witnessed these processes taking place, and I wonder, to what extent was more radical grassroots activism purged? Yeah. I mean, how did they transition from these local community-based, more radically-minded uh, activism to this more uh, sanitized NGO-based right. activism. What was that process like? Well, that's a good question. I mean, my take. Uh, I mean, I'm getting there at a bit in the mid '80s. I'm, you know, 52. I mean, uh, a decade or so before, of course, there was a lot of political repression against um, forces on the left, um, the black left, that were fighting for real fundamental. Uh, transformation. Um, there were internal problems as well, but there was external repression. Um, uh, but in the 80s, I, I think there are a number of factors. I mean, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yes. Um, there is no alternative. We have to be realistic. Some of these people were, yeah, had been activists beginning in the late 60s and early 70s, getting into middle age, looking to be uh, a little bit comfortable. I, I think so it was a confluence of factors and yeah i mean a bigger role for these foundations i mean they were pouring a lot of money um into these into these groups to get them on board with their neoliberal uh urban agenda 
Um, and, uh, you know, I think that helps to uh, explain the, the uh, transformation. Yeah. Uh, and I have a quote in the book from one of these characters about how, you know, they talk about that, how it's difficult to make that change. But we're in a new, it's not the 60s anymore, I was told. And we have to kind of work within the system. It kind of, uh, it, it, it was uh, another articulation of what Bayard Rustin called for at the uh, end of the, Jim, with the, after the defeat of Jim Crow, that the civil rights movement had to move from protest to politics, meaning working within um, the Democratic Party. And we can see now, 50 years later, the disastrous product of taking that turn, not only for Bayard Rustin to turn from a pacifist into a cheerleader for the um, the uh, Vietnam War and, and Israel's uh, uh, Zionist violence, um, uh, but for the movement as a whole. Yeah, and I just wonder, quick follow-up to that, this is also the period when, when you're arriving in New Orleans, I mean, this is the period of the, 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 the thrust of the so-called war on drugs, it is the beginning right, of the modern right, right, mass yeah. incarceration state, and, you know, right. all of the rest of these problems which really blighted a lot of these black communities, and I don't know New Orleans personally, but my under, my, yeah. my knowledge of New York City, my knowledge in, in Los Angeles and in Oakland, these cities were devastated by that process simultaneously the neoliberal evisceration of the black working class especially the exporting of working class jobs out of those cities so to what extent was the same thing happening in new orleans i imagine it was yeah i mean it wasn't an industrial uh power like a detroit or or a newark at one time but yeah definitely those same uh policies were hollowing out the urban economy um, the one source of jobs was the low-wage tourist industry, and the, the local political leadership worked, worked with the hotel tourist industry to keep it non-union. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, following kind of the Gramscian um, con- concept of hegemony, there was consensus here at the nonprofits, but there was a whole lot of coercion, right? They used the war on drugs to... Um, and uh, mechanisms like one strike and you're out, so yeah. if you were even accused, right? So this is kind of um, uh, a predated what they've done around Guantanamo. If you're accused of uh, committing a crime, um, not only around drugs, but anything, anywhere, not simply in the development, but anywhere, if you are even had visited the development, and even if you're on the lease, the authorities could use that to evict the whole family, and that was held up by the um, by the uh, Supreme Court. And this was really interesting. Although it was first kind of on the books under Reagan, it was really enforced and deepened under the Clinton administration um, yeah. uh, after the right-wing turn in the Congress in, in 1994. And also the black political leadership um, uh, embraced that, Mark Moriel, the, the mayor at the time. And that was another kind of key lever that was used to push out um, to push out residents. And it was simultaneous. And, and sometimes sim- it was targeted against activists. Yeah. You know, those that were speaking up, they would kind of use these these uh, levers. And it was simultaneous within the Clinton administration that they were doing that, and at the same time, completely destroying what we what we then referred to as welfare. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. So yeah, welfare s- and public housing were his two two major targets and and victories. And that's what is so uh, cynical about uh, Hillary Clinton now posing 
as a friend of Black Lives Matter and against the mass incarceration system when uh, they played the biggest increase in the prison population occurred under the Clinton years. And they poured in a lot more police, right? Instead of putting 100,000 extra teachers, federally funded teachers on the ground or or for public sector jobs, uh, construction, public services, they put in 100,000 more cops on the streets. Yeah, And again, that was embraced by the local, you know, the Democratic urban um, uh, elected officials in New Orleans and around the country. Yeah, exactly. I want to close um, with this issue. And just for full disclosure to my listeners who would have no way of knowing this, uh, Jay and I Jay and I first met around Occupy Wall Street, and we were working right. together in the Occupy Wall Street working group for around demands, trying to push Occupy to making concrete political demands, which in many ways was an uphill battle, but that's a separate issue. Uh, so Jay and I are, are, are very interested in the question of making demands and working towards concrete solutions. And that's where I want to close our conversation, Jay. Where do we go from here in in New Orleans, for instance? What sort of organizing work is taking place? And especially, what are some of the new ways, innovative ways that we can be organizing ourselves, both within a place like New Orleans and more generally, to be able to take on some of these seemingly insurmountable obstacles we're talking about? You know, the way the ruling class presented the alternatives was, you know, around in post Katrina, around public services, public housing, public schools. It was either they should do this around the country. It's either we accept the way they are now and the continued underfunding and deterioration of those public services, public housing, public schools, but others as well, or we accept their neoliberal reforms that are often presented as very progressive and and anti-racist, but actually deepen racial and class inequality. And I think those are false uh, alternatives. I think the only way we're going to make a step forward is to fight for what we want. And that's our, what we see as the silver lining Mm -hmm. of Katrina. For the ruling class, David Brooks and their other pundits, ruling class pundits, they saw it Katrina as a as a silver lining to push and deepen their neo capitalist neoliberal capitalist assaults, and they have done that. That's why they're celebrating ten years on. From the perspective of those that are fighting for an equitable reconstruction, uh, a working class reconstruction, a, a socialist reconstruction, we also saw this as a silver lining. We realized New Orleans and cities around the country are a disaster area in many ways, but our solution was to fight for what we want, a mass. What, what we saw Katrina underscoring is the need for a mass uh, direct government employment public works program. Uh, just before Katrina, the, the Society of Civil Engineers had come out with a report that said that two, we have a $2 trillion deficit in unmet infrastructural needs. We're not even talking about schools and hospitals and housing, uh, but you know bridges and dams and levees. Um, and that's even deeper uh, ten, 10 years on. And we see this uh, in when Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, hits Metro New York or one of these highways just collapsed out of the blue. And so while we were working to defend public services from public housing and the hospitals, we coupled that with a positive demand of jobs for all, free public services for all. When we say for all, it includes the immigrants that were brought in 
uh, post-Katrina, that, uh, mostly Latino, that were pitted in an ugly conflict against uh, African-American workers who were blocked out by public policy. Um, also, those that have been uh, incarcerated and have a record and have basically been excluded from public sector jobs in any way, or basically been made illegal. So it would be for all. And this would be a way in which we get out of our single-issue struggles and we connect to a broad demand that can unite a broad sector and is a demand, a coherent demand, not a, a laundry list, but a coherent demand that can really address our struggles in our different terrains from education, housing, anti-war, the prison industrial complex, gentrification, and so on and so on. And so we did, you know, attempt to get it on the radar screen, but that was, it was tough sledding at the time. But now, 10 years after, with the global financial meltdown, the deepening of the neoliberal attacks. And now it's clear the second leg of this crisis where, where China has hit the wall, which had carried the global capitalist economy over the last generation, has uh, run out of steam. We think it's a real opportunity um, uh, to put this demand uh, more nationally as a real way to have a, a real alternative to the austerity agenda, the bipartisan austerity agenda that we see, be it progressive uh, Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo in New York, or reactionary fundamentalist uh, Bobby Jindal here uh, in Louisiana. And that is our real uh, challenge uh, for progressive forces, radical forces, revolutionary forces. Yeah, and I, I guess the thing is, and this is really what you're advocating, and I, of course, agree entirely, is that there needs to be two things happening simultaneously. It is what the, what, you know, the, the French gave us this term avant-garde. It comes from the French military mm-hmm. tactic. That is to say, uh-huh. simultaneously right. advancing and defending. That we need to defend all of these right. institutions, defend public schools, defend public housing, defend uh, public access to utilities, water, electricity, all right. of these these things, defending all of these uh, important institutions and simultaneously advancing a set of coherent, concrete demands, not recognition of, uh, you know, whether or not whether or not this issue is important or that issue is important. We don't need the ruling class to recognize and to say these things. We need action and we need real fundamental demands. And that's what you're talking about. And I, of course, agree entirely. Great, great. Well, so we've got a lot of work cut out for ourselves, definitely. Absolutely, but, um, absolutely. We'll, um, and we'll be talking about that, um, you know, at the uh, People's History of Katrina Con- Hurricane Katrina Conference on Sunday. Um, and we do hope to, well, we plan to have it videotaped, and uh, we will be putting that online so your listeners uh, we'll be able to hopefully be able to view that as well. Definitely. And for listeners, uh, you're hearing this already. The conference has already happened, but uh, follow me on, on Facebook, Twitter, uh, go to go to my website, Stop Imperialism, wherever you need to. Uh, I will get you the link to that so you can see the video and um, connect with Jay if you can on, on Facebook or social media in general. Anyway, um, we're out of time. Jay Arena, I want to thank you again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, listeners, uh, Jay is a good guy. He's a friend of mine. He's, his work is excellent. I, I highly recommend the book, Driven from New Orleans, How Nonprofits Betray Public Housing and Promote Privatization. Uh, again, as always, thanks so much for listening to Counterpunch Radio. Give us those positive reviews on iTunes, and um, I guess I'll sign off here, and I'll speak to you all again next week. Thanks again. Bye-bye.